Statistics reveal alarming disparities in healthcare access, treatment, and outcomes for LGBTQ plus people. From discriminatory practices to inadequate cultural competency, our healthcare system often needs to improve in providing equitable care for this community. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 480, and today we're talking with Alex Sheldon of GLMA, GLMA, Healthcare Professionals Advancing LGBTQ Plus Equality. GLMA is the world's oldest and largest association of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and allied healthcare professionals. Alex is the executive director of GLMA and a professional researcher, strategist, and advocate with over 15 years of experience in the field of human rights with a concentration in LGBTQ plus rights. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome, Alex Sheldon, to the Queer Money Podcast. We're finally excited to have this happen for us. Likewise, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. For the benefit of our listeners, would you mind doing a brief introduction of yourself? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks so much. So my name is Alex Sheldon. I use they, them pronouns, and I am the executive director of GLAMA. We are the oldest and largest association of LGBTQ plus and allied health professionals, and we are a leader in advancing LGBTQ plus health equity in this country. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for the important work you do. So for the benefit or edification of our listeners, we're going to dive into some of the the challenges that you see in the often and and how GLAM is tackling that. So how are the healthcare needs of the LGBTQ plus folks different from those of the general population? Can you sort of set a baseline for us? Yeah, sure thing. And again, I have to say, I'm a really big fan of this show. And one particular reason that I've been a fan of Queer Money is Precisely because of how you all shed light on how LGBTQ plus people are excluded from systems that would benefit our financial security and prosperity. The legacy exclusions, I think you call them on some episodes. So as a result of stigma and discrimination, we earn less, invest less, and spend more. And so stigma and discrimination faced by LGBTQ plus people as tangible, long-term financial disadvantages, right? And I really believe that the very same is true of LGBTQ plus people in healthcare. We earn less, invest less, and spend more when it comes to our healthcare too. When I say we earn less in healthcare, I really mean that as a community, we're less likely to have access to health resources in large part because we have lower incomes, less access to familial financial support. And in turn, we're more likely to be uninsured or underinsured. In fact, I think LGBTQ plus people are less likely than non-LGBTQ plus people to have private insurance and more likely to have Medicaid coverage for one. Then I think we're, we're less likely to invest in our health. And people who invest in their health are those who manage their stress, who sleep well, who balance exercise and rest, have access to and eat nutritious meals, schedule and show up for regular health checkups and screenings and take their medications. So LGBTQ plus people are often prevented from investing in their health in in these very specific ways. And finally, we spend more on healthcare, and that's because we have those unique health needs that often come with much, much higher price tags, needs like inclusive reproductive health, sexual health, and transition-related care just to start. When it comes to building a family, the average LGBTQ plus family bringing a child into their lives can cost up to, can spend between $55,000 and $100,000 and sometimes much, much more, really depending on whether they use assisted reproductive technologies like IVF or IUI or adoption or surrogacy or other means. And while, you know, cisgender and heterosexual folks also incur additional costs when growing their families sometimes, often as a result of fertility challenges, it's essentially the standard for LGBTQ plus folks. Over 60% of us expect to use assisted reproductive technology or foster care adoption to build our families. And on top of that, we pay for additional legal costs when it comes to building our families to establish our parental rights. Then in sexual health, another place where we have unique health needs, LGBTQ plus people are far more likely to have been tested for HIV and STIs within the last year. And I'm so glad that our community is taking care of our sexual health, but these also are associated with higher costs. 
And LGBTQ plus people are more likely to take PrEP, our pre-exposure prophylaxis, to prevent the transmission of HIV. Those medications can cost $22,000 or to $30,000 a year without insurance, like, which is primarily one of the primary reasons why uptake of this truly revolutionary drug is concentrated within white and cisgender communities who have more access to financial resources. And finally, in gender-affirming care, for many trans and non-binary folks like myself, access to transition-related medical care is a crucial and, and costly component of healthcare. Cost estimates for gender-affirming care vary, of course, because plans are, are very highly individualized. But many trans and non-binary people who choose hormone treatment to align their appearance with their gender identity, those hormone treatments can cost between $30 and $1,400 a year with insurance, and without insurance can cost upwards of $5,000 a year. And if surgery is a part of that transition plan, the costs continue to rise, and most individual surgeries cost between $1,500 and $25,000 a year, but some procedures cost over $100,000. And I should note that these costs don't include things like time off from work or recovery or other costs that are related to access. So taken together, the cost of LGBTQ healthcare, it can really add up and be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's just on, the, on top of the typical costs for primary care, prevention, and other everyday health matters. So I guess when you consider that LGBTQ people are more likely to live with disabilities, more likely to have chronic illnesses and more likely to experience mental health issues, the cost of healthcare for LGBTQ plus folks are just truly exorbitant. Yeah, geez, that's a. I really appreciate that you started at the base level of healthcare. Because I think a lot of times when we hear the word healthcare, we think of going to the doctor, getting your medications, you know, go, if I need an ambulance ride, if I end up in the hospital. But you kind of started at this ground level of, how do we take care of ourselves physically as the front line of defense when it comes to our healthcare? And if we don't have access to or prevented from accessing or financially, we cannot access simple things like exercise, quality food, facilities that help us get rid of the maybe the addictions that we took on early in life, we don't have access to those, then it is much more likely we're going to hit some of the other types of healthcare needs much earlier in our lives than many other folks would. And I think we need to recognize that there's we need a support system within the community as well when it comes to those kinds of things being the front line of when we start taking care of ourselves, not just when we do need a doctor or we do need a trip to the hospital. I couldn't agree more. I think that so much of that stems from like our own social support and our own experiences in coming out. And for many of us, we've experienced significant trauma in, around those things. And taking care of ourselves often comes as not just like a second nature to us. It really takes a lot for us to overcome and really invest in our own well-being, looking out for ourselves in those ways. And I do think that there's a really big gap when it comes to social support for LGBTQ plus people. And those support mechanisms are truly crucial when it comes to whether or not someone is going to invest in their own health and well-being. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go off the map a little bit here, but every time we talk about challenges of healthcare in America, I always put it in the lens of the challenges in America. You may not know this, and uh, forgive me for asking if, if you don't, but is there a country that's really doing this well that like that we can use as sort of a our talisman to how can we can architect healthcare in the United States that would address LGBTQ plus healthcare needs? Oh, that's such a great question. And I honestly wish there was a simple answer, but I do think that there are places where they do certain elements of care quite well. For instance, our neighbors directly to the north, um, having universal health coverage is a real crucial component because one of the biggest challenges for LGBTQ plus people seeking care is whether or not they can afford it and also whether or not they can access the right kind of culturally competent care for themselves. So with us and our complex insurance systems, we don't often even know who's in network or out of network or what specific services are in network or out of network or going to be covered or not. And our neighbors to the North in Canada, they actually have a little bit more of a grasp on, on universal access. 
And then we can also learn a lot from folks in other countries in Southeast Asia who have made access to gender affirming surgeries and really revolutionized in that care in that place. And I think that if we were to learn more lessons from other countries in those ways and implement what's working, we could create a much more inclusive and honestly, a much more effective and cost-effective health system in our country as well. That would take a little bit of humility. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. We're there yet. (laughs) Which we're famous for as a country. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. So speaking of culture, why is cultural competency so essential for more marginalized communities such as the LGBTQ plus community when it comes to healthcare specifically? Yeah, cultural competency is really a cornerstone of the work at Glamo. We really believe that investing in education of health professionals is going to move the needle. If we have more health professionals that understand the unique experiences of LGBTQ plus folks, then then we're going to understand the pathways to health equity a whole lot better. And when it comes to advancing physical and and mental health, I think LGBTQ plus cultural competency and cultural competency of all levels is really an essential factor to nurturing trust between provider and patient. And that trust is then an incredibly crucial component of healthcare provision overall. So when healthcare providers demonstrate for, for LGBTQ plus folks in particular, a deep understanding of cultural nuances, challenges, and different identities within our community, it's going to build that foundation of trust. But conversely, you know, when a provider fails to establish or breaks your trust by stigmatizing LGBTQ plus identities or making assumptions about our lived experiences, or honestly, even requiring that the patient educate them on, on our own health needs, it can really have profound impact on LGBTQ plus individuals and our health. The lack of trust really creates barriers to accessing quality care and exacerbates those health disparities. I think one key example, something that we hear really often from LGBTQ plus patients, and and honestly, particularly from bisexual patients, is that their providers fail to build trust when they make assumptions about the gender or genders of the individual's partners or when they make assumptions about their sexual behavior with those partners. Take a bisexual woman who's visiting a provider for the first time, a new provider, and in taking part of a sexual history, instead of asking an open-ended question like, can you tell me about your recent partner or partners? They may say, so do you have a boyfriend? Or if she mentions having a girlfriend, they might skip questions about contraception altogether without inquiring further, right? So these lines of questioning are full of assumptions about the patient's sexual orientation, and this is going to discourage that patient from honestly presenting her sexual history, and that's going to prevent an open conversation about sexual health practices and STI prevention techniques. And then, as a result, she may miss out on valuable guidance for safer sex practices and regular screenings. That's going to increase her vulnerability to undetected sexually transmitted infections and missed opportunities for early detection. And one thing that's a lesson in healthcare overall is it's almost always more expensive to treat something further out than it is to prevent or detect it early. So this economic, the economic impacts really ripple. And that's not all. If this woman doesn't feel comfortable bringing her full self to the provider's office, or she feels disrespected or neglected, she is more likely to delay or avoid her next visit. So she's less likely to show Mm -hmm. up for treatment, less likely to ask questions, less likely to request a referral, and all she's less likely to invest in her health care. And importantly, this really bears out in the research. LGBTQ plus people are 26% more likely than straight and cisgender people to have intentionally delayed avoided or skipped an exam in the last 12 months. And we are twice as likely to avoid a health screening due to a past negative experience. So those negative experiences could have been prevented with culturally competent care provision. 26% less likely 
to have a checkup or a follow-up on a healthcare issue? Yeah, 26%. Yeah, exactly. 26% more likely to skip that important stuff. And honestly, when you, I'm I'm happy to go further, but or I can pause. Yeah, I mean, please. I think one of the the key pieces, because you're we're, we were talking about all historically excluded communities there too. If you layer on multiple marginalized identities like race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or disability, the need for LGBTQ plus cultural competency becomes even more critical. Individuals who are navigating those like, intersecting oppressions are going to face compounded challenges in healthcare. For BIPOC LGBTQ plus people, navigating healthcare systems can be particularly challenging because these communities have even less reason to trust their providers. We know now that the medical system has a track record, brutally exploiting and experimenting on black and brown bodies in the past and, and actually fairly recent history. So providers then with BIPOC LGBTQ plus people not only have to build trust, but they're really starting from a place of like warranted distrust. So without a culturally competent approach that acknowledges those diverse backgrounds, we're going to see even further compounded difficulties that hinder physical, mental, and economic well-being. The Tuskegee experiment only wrapped up in 1970 or 71. Exactly. As David's been alive longer than that. Oh, thanks for for exploiting my age here. I do appreciate you're talking about this whole experience from a trust issue, because if we don't trust the physician that we're seeing, we're not going to be willing to tell them the truth about what's Mm -hmm. really going on, whether that's going on with our physical body or going on with our you know mental state. And I, I think about the data that shows the number of men, especially gay, bisexual men who are having mental health issues to the point of suicide. I can't help but wonder if there is some sort of dynamic there where a lot of men, especially men who don't feel comfortable talking to their doctor about their mental health, Mm-hmm. are ones who are avoiding getting those mental health checkups are get and the physical we know that the physical plays into the mental health right when mm-hmm. when we physically are in pain we are emotionally in pain as well and that that just kind of all compounds on this whole idea that we need to be taking care of our our whole selves and if we don't trust the person that's supposed to be in a sense holding our hand through that whole process then we're just not getting what we need and we will end up being in those situations where either there isn't a way to take care of us or we just don't take care of it at all and die early. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I mean, really think about what it takes to situate yourself in a healthcare setting. It is incredibly vulnerable. You have to share things that you might not even share with your closest friends in some respects, right? And not only that, but you're sitting there, you might be in a hospital gown, you might actually like be physically very vulnerable. Right. So that trust is incredibly crucial. And I do believe that this is why educating health professionals in LGBTQ plus cultural competency can make such a huge difference in advancing health equity and establishing that trust. One of the more interesting statistics I've I've heard recently is about, you know, I think we all understand that sexual orientation and gender identity are so inextricably linked with our health overall. Mm-hmm. But there's a notable disconnect between patients and providers when it comes to bringing this information to light. A study from just a few years ago found that health professionals vastly underestimate patients' willingness to disclose their sexual orientation. They found that 80% of health professionals believed that patients would be offended if the provider asked for sexual orientation information. But really, only 10% of patients reported that they would feel at all uncomfortable or refuse to answer. So health professionals need to be educated in understanding that this is not an offensive question. This is not something that needs to be so closely guarded or it's kind of taboo. This is something that's truly integral to understanding someone's overall health and well-being. And again, it's it's why it's such a cornerstone of Glamma's work, why we educate health professionals all throughout the year in LGBTQ plus cultural competency. We serve as an accredited continuing medical education provider, and through our webinars and our annual conference on LGBTQ plus health, we provide LGBTQ plus health education to thousands of health professionals every single year. 
And then importantly, we're also looking at things from the patient side of things. Earlier this year, I'm very proud to share that Glamour launched a new and improved version of our longstanding LGBTQ plus healthcare directory. We first launched a directory many years ago, and it was the very first of its kind then, and primarily had a lot of LGBTQ plus identified health professionals there. And now with our increase, with our newly launched directory, with its increased functionality and very sleek design, our LGBTQ plus healthcare directory is now the fastest growing searchable database of affirming healthcare providers who are truly knowledgeable and sensitive to the unique health needs of LGBTQ plus people. And this is all in an effort to ensure that LGBTQ people from all over are able to find the care that they, they need and deserve. I did see that. Is that are you referring to the Castle Conley top LGBTQ plus doctors list that you created? You know, that's that, actually a separate. That is actually a separate partnership. We have oh, an entire is. searchable database called the LGBTQ Healthcare Directory. But the Castle Connolly list was for LGBTQ plus identified, not just allies, not inclusive of allies in that space. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I, I think this is this is a really important thing. I mean, I remember early on after I had come out. I hadn't been to the doctor for quite a few years, but I was in my mid-20s at the time, mid to late 20s. And I do remember going to the doctor, I think maybe a few months after I had had sex for the first time. And mm -hmm. I just remember sitting there looking at this man who was on the other side of the room from me, thinking to myself, this guy reminds me of the same kind of guys that would beat me up or pick on me mm -hmm. when I was in school, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't feel, and granted, this is late 90s and you know, the world has changed a lot since then, but still there are there are lots of places, lots of doctors' offices that people are going to still feel that, whether that's mm -hmm. in a city like San Francisco or New York or a place like Little Rock, Arkansas, or Laramie, Wyoming, there are still places where people are going to feel that. I, so especially when we're thinking about moving or going to a new place, having a resource like that is so important. And for retirees too, mm -hmm. right? When we when we decide to leave the North and go to the South for warm weather, we're going to, we need healthcare. We're probably, and it is, I know that is one of the things that's preventing some people from leaving their locations for retirement is they want to stick with the doctor who knows them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That That is exact. One of the main reasons why we developed the directory back when it was first developed was precisely that, like LGBTQ people moving or having to search based on the type of insurance that they have or really looking for a specialty, like a specialist in any area. They need to have access to a larger list. I think one of the cornerstones that we have that we want to make sure folks understand is that you can only make good choices when you have choices. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. for many folks who live in rural areas or for older adults who have limited mobility, maybe it's really hard to find care when you are limited to just one or two options. So this is really about widening out our choices and making sure that everyone can access the care that they need. Absolutely. So who would you say in your work, is the most affected by these challenges that the community faces as a whole? Yeah, I think that's such a good question because we we talk about this a lot, particularly in our education work, is that our community is not a monolith. We all have different needs. We all have different care that we are searching for. We all have different lived experiences. So we know that all members of the LGBTQ plus community are subject to stigma and discrimination and therefore, you know, the negative ramifications in health and finances. But I think it's perhaps most acutely felt with trans and gender diverse populations, BIPOC LGBTQ plus folks, and also LGBTQ plus folks with disabilities, and also LGBTQ plus older adults. We know that the systems of oppression converge for individuals with these multiple marginalized identities. And when this happens, those areas of discrimination are, are truly amplified. But what's really top of mind for me right now, and, and I'm definitely want to talk about all of those populations because they all have very unique needs and very unique solutions that are designed for their healthcare. But what's top of mind for me right now is the healthcare-related financial impacts on trans and non-binary people. We are currently experiencing, as I'm sure you know and, and have covered, just this unprecedented legislative attack on trans and non-binary people, and in particular on our rights to healthcare. So it's it's kind of difficult to characterize this time period and this political landscape as anything other than just extremely hostile. 
last year we saw a record number of anti-LGBTQ plus bills. We saw over 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced. And so far in 2024, in just this first portion of this year, we've already seen over 100 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced. And a huge proportion of these bills are targeting transgender health care. So it's important to note that this is all part of an extremely well-funded and well-coordinated plan to erode our rights to bodily autonomy, our rights to make decisions about our bodies, our health, and essentially our future. And fully now, 23 states have passed restrictions on best practice medical care for trans youth. Uh, even a few of those have actually included restrictions on adult access to care as well. And it's no secret, the right has actually admitted to the fact that their end game is to restrict care for all transgender people, not just young people, despite their claims. But now with these bans in place, an estimated 36% of trans youth live in a state where they cannot legally access evidence-based medically necessary health care. That's over one third of trans youth. And the economic impacts uh, really are stretching throughout entire communities. We've heard from countless families that they have been forced to travel out of state or even move out of state to ensure that their child can receive the health care they need to survive. That means not only upending their entire family from their social support systems, but it actually introduces an entire new economic reality for the family. And unfortunately, many of the states where this care is protected, those states are far more expensive to live in than the states with bans. Take Texas, for example, where care was banned last year. The average cost of living is about $45,000 a year. Many Texans look to California and Colorado to continue care for their children, where the cost of living is at least $10,000 higher than in their home state. So for some families, traveling and moving is not even financially feasible. They're using emergency savings, dipping into retirement funds to make that care possible. And some families are actually just splitting up. It's actually not uncommon for one parent to move with the young person to a new state while the other parent actually stays home to keep the job that they have to provide for the family. And for GLAMA members, like our health professionals in these states, they're faced with these like untenable decisions. They can either comply with the ban and jeopardize the lives of their transgender youth patients, or they can violate the law to deliver evidence-based care, but lose their medical licenses and their livelihoods as a result. So many providers, rather than facing this like awful decision, are opting to uproot themselves and move. But now, just to complicate it further, even in states where this gender-affirming care is actually protected, they're being inundated with requests for care from families fleeing those banned states. So wait times have increased, they've skyrocketed. They've increased from three-month wait periods to six months, six months to a year. And not only that, but the price of care is increasing. We've watched the risk of litigation rising for clinics and so obtaining malpractice insurance from like the commercial marketplace has become a huge barrier, even in states that have legal protections for health care for trans people. Malpractice insurance for this type of care used to be under $10,000 on average, and now it is often over $50,000. Wow. So these discriminatory Whoa. laws are affecting access to medically necessary care everywhere. And I think we're going to be seeing these negative economic impacts of, from this political environment for generations to come. Yeah. You know, I read an article about exactly what you're talking about happening in Rochester, New York, mm -hmm. and how Rochester had a strong and relatively sustainable program and group of solutions for trans folks. And then the word got out that New York the state was a, a state of where people could seek refuge. And then Rochester itself word got out. And the article was basically describing about literally how hundreds of people are moving, quitting their jobs in other states, moving to Rochester with no income, no insurance. And they're they're now caught in the system there of trying to figure out how do they get health care that they need when they don't have the financial support. And that's just, it's very scary that that's happening. And one of the doctors mentioned exactly what you said, that the increase in wait time on being able to serve the people that they had, just because there's hundreds of people moving there doesn't mean there's also an influx of doctors going there too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it also doesn't mean that there's an influx of financial resources going to more training or to protecting those doctors. Another thing we've heard from even in states that protect this care is that providers who do provide this type of care are now being threatened on almost a daily basis, whether that's online threats or death threats or bomb threats being called into their facilities. It's very, very challenging to continue to administer this type of life-saving care. It's actually one of the reasons why Glam is incredibly proud to be fighting back against these horrible bans. We are currently suing three different states, the states of Texas, Missouri, and North Carolina, to ensure that our members can continue to practice medicine to the best of their ability. And serving as an organizational plaintiff, and we serve as an organizational plaintiff alongside PFLAG, the organization that works with families of LGBTQ plus folks in order to curate more accepting and affirming families. And we are able, by serving as an organizational plaintiff, to really step up in defense of this kind of care, as well as the providers of that care. And then in addition to those lawsuits, one of the ways that we're trying to expand care is, is through that training I mentioned before. We're working coalition to support providers all over the country to coordinate care and navigate these complex legal structures that add just innumerable layers of complexity to their medical practice and trying to ensure that we can train even more providers so that they can become competent in this type of care so that we can hopefully cut down on some of those wait times and maybe even cut down on the necessity to completely uproot people's lives to just to access healthcare. Yeah, so this question might seem unnecessary to ask, but I want to create a, a comprehensive episode. We've seen a lot of these anti-LGBTQ plus legislations are happening at the state level. None of the presidential candidates have really talked all that much about anti-LGBTQ plus legislation, specifically for healthcare. And the one that kind of did talk about, it, he stuck his tail between his legs and went home. What is actually on the line with this upcoming presidential election, would you say? Yeah, a great question. And I was not displeased to see that that candidate actually return to where he came from. I think that for LGBTQ plus folks right now, we we really need to pay attention to what is being said, both on the stages and also through political ads. We have evidence now that the GOP invested tens of millions of dollars in one year towards anti-trans attacks in the media. This is, again, an incredibly well-coordinated and well-funded attack on our, our rights to health care. So there is quite a bit on the line for us in, in terms of this next election. It's a really intense and dangerous time to be an LGBTQ plus person right now. And we're definitely disheartened to see so many hard-won rights at risk again. And again, these have predominantly targeted trans and non-binary people. But we do have a lot of things in our corner. Like we are absolutely on the winning side of this fight and we've made incredible progress over the last few decades. And I know that there are many, many people in this movement who are working tirelessly to make sure that we don't move backwards. But this election, I would have to say there's so much on the line that I have a hard time even encapsulating it into one place. But the Republicans have often talked about anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ plus bills as being central to their platform. And again, as I said, they've openly admitted to the fact that they're trying to ban transgender health care for everyone, not just children. They've indicated that they're willing to pass a federal ban on trans medical care generally. And also, that's one part of their overall plan to restrict bodily autonomy, and that includes access to abortion and other, other health and safety that, that is crucial to our livelihoods. They want to ban certain parts of sexual health, education, HIV treatments, and also substance use treatments and resources. And again, as of always, they're after our reproductive health care. Plus, under the Biden-Harris administration, we've made significant strides that have restored critical federal protections for LGBTQ plus people in healthcare. Uh, most recently, HHS has restored protections against religious exemptions for healthcare workers in federally funded programs. 
So it had made it illegal once again for a health professional to deny care to an LGBT person simply because they don't agree with their identity. So that means if you are in an emergency, if you are in a car accident and are taken to a hospital, that those doctors can no longer simply say, this is a transgender person. I don't agree with their livelihood. I'm not going to treat them. That was legal in the country before HHS restored these protections. And we're still awaiting a rule on really crucial non-discrimination protections that were outlined in the Affordable Care Act that is under Section 1557. Those, those protections for LGBTQ plus folks, they were removed under the Trump administration. And we are anxiously awaiting a ruling that hopefully will reinstate those. So these, once again, could be lost if we do not prevent the Republicans from gaining power in the executive office. And I, I really am not being hyperbolic when I say that our freedom essentially is is on the line in this election. Absolutely. So, folks, if you're getting riled up about hearing this, we would refer you back to episode 386 of the Queer Money podcast, where we talked about how this is a 50, 60 year plus campaign that's being well-funded by multi-billion dollar anti-LGBTQ plus tax advantage donor advised funds. And the LGBTQ plus community has nothing like this created. So we're fighting with one, even two arms behind our back because we're just not this well-funded or organized. So I refer you back to that episode and talk to whomever you can to figure out one way, shape or form that we can help replicate the model that they're using to come up with these five, now I guess 500 some anti-LGBTQ plus laws. Mm-hmm. That was a lot. sorry it's it's scary and it's hard to keep a smile on your face it is you know i'm gonna i'm gonna throw in a curveball here because i've i keep hearing this kind of bubbling under that more and more younger millennials and gen z folks are thinking about sitting this election out because they're not happy with the way biden and the biden administration are dealing with the issues with between israel and and gaza and is this a is this a, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and we are, the LGBT community is the baby that's getting thrown out with the bathwater in this particular instance? Hmm. It's a really complicated question. I think what young LGBTQ plus folks and young people in general are responding to is this increased realization that all of our oppressions are linked. And so we cannot divorce our own lives and livelihoods and our own rights in this country from a genocide that's taking place in another country halfway across the world. And so they're responding to that by saying that there, if we are an administration is going to allow something to take place that is harming, that is harming an entire population, then that is not going to lead to liberation for LGBTQ plus people here. And they have a point. We do know that these complex layers and complex systems that oppress all of us, they are inextricably linked. A lot of a lot of misogyny and a lot of gender essentialism is rooted actually in racism. A lot of racism is rooted in xenophobia and so on and so forth. And so I think that they're right in that these things cannot be pulled apart. We cannot just sanction one form of violence while saying that we stand firmly against another form of violence. And at the same time, we are actively watching a true dissolution of our democracy potentially take place. President Trump has made no secret of the fact that he intends to be a dictator. He may not allow another election to take place in 2028 if he wins the election in 2024. So while I think that there are folks who are, everyone is is very much right in exploring all the interconnectedness of our oppressions. And also we need to preserve our democracy in this country right now. Um, I'm also very terrified of the idea in the healthcare industry and in politics and the ways in which the right is essentially trying to make sure that all health policy is guided by ideology, not by evidence and fact. These are attacks that have been played, that have been leveraged against the FDA, who is responsible for making sure that food and drugs are safe for us. And now that they are under attack by the right is truly unconscionable. They've also tried to attack the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Like there are true things at risk where they're trying to make ideology the baseline for all health policy formation rather than medical evidence and expertise. And that erosion is a really frightening 
slope to like slippery slope to watch. Yeah, it, it's it's unfortunate that whenever we start to talk about these types of topics, it so often ends up getting political because healthcare shouldn't be political. Healthcare mm-hmm. decisions should be personal between you and your medical care provider. And it's so unfortunate that politics and the religious industrial complex is getting so involved in these kinds of decisions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, that is essentially how a lot of these systems were set up. They weren't set up to... Uh, they were not set up with LGBTQ plus people in mind. They were mostly set up with cisgender, straight, white men of means. And they were meant to keep those people in power, which means the more that we try to navigate through them, often we're mired by the ways in which we're simply not meant to prosper within these systems. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really, really good point. This whole idea of oppression is to keep people in power. And when We can oppress you through the healthcare system, through your access to livelihood at a physical level state, not financially, Mm -hmm. but that too. We literally remove your ability to have any sort of power. You're stuck at those lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of being concerned about your physical safety, about the basic necessities that you have. That is a position of weakness that we just that we get stuck in so much as a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really couldn't agree more with that. And I really think that that is such an interesting overlap or really interesting corollary between financial systems and health systems. I think that as as a community, as you all know, we underutilize financial products. We underutilize the financial system that is actually intended to help people build and sustain wealth, or maybe certain people. I know that we read a read a recent report where like 25% of LGBTQ plus people are completely unbanked, meaning they don't even have access to a checking or savings account, let alone investments or long-term care insurance or life insurance or any other products meant to, meant to increase our prosperity. We're four times more likely than our straight and cisgender counterparts to be unbanked and unable to access those products. And honestly, to your point about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think that many people in our community avoid dealing with our financial health for the the very same reasons why we delay care to manage our, our actual physical and mental health. And there's a real fear of rejection, a real fear of stigma, and those are real fears and real barriers to access. Whether you're talking about a doctor or a financial advisor or a banker, So for many of us, another significant barrier is trauma, trauma that we've experienced at the hands of both health systems and financial systems. One in 10 LGBTQ plus people have experienced discrimination in banking and financial services. And that only goes up when we're talking about LGBTQ plus people of color and transgender folks. And nearly one in four have experienced financial hardship directly related to their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that Hardship can come from workplace discrimination, lack of access to education, family rejection, or any interrelated issues there. And we talk a lot about family rejection after coming out and how it impacts our well-being and our health and our mental health. But there's really often like a financial trauma there as well. Many LGBTQ people go from like relative financial security to absolutely no support whatsoever directly after coming out. It's really a night and day shift. And it's what we call uh, the lesser talked about riches to rags story. And LGBTQ plus folks, like this is also what's happening as young people are coming out younger and younger while they are still financially dependent on their parents and other family members. It means that that's going to be, you're more and more likely to experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. So these experiences of financial discrimination, of economic hardship, of rejection and abandonment, these are all experiences of trauma. And I'm sure we can imagine how hard it is to trust your own financial security enough to invest in financial resources and financial products when your experiences with finances have truly been traumatic up to then. And I really want to make sure that folks, when they are hopefully availing themselves to therapy and other other mental health resources, to not shy away from talking about how financial your financial situation could have contributed to your trauma. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. So I I feel like we went a little bit toward the negative, which is probably inevitable with this type type of topic, but you did 
earlier on, you did say that there were some things that were giving you hope. Let's do a little bit on that for a minute as we wrap up. What has you hopeful about the state of healthcare for LGBTQ plus people in America, at least in the hopefully in the near future? Oof. Great question. A few things. One is that I have seen such a proliferation of resources and education available online that LGBTQ plus folks are are more often just less likely to put up with just culturally incompetent care. They are less likely to stick with a provider or stick with a financial advisor who doesn't see and value and and encourage them as they are in their LGBTQ plus identities. And that's so crucial. And that can only be done because they're being empowered by their peers and by education online. There's a real element of health literacy, similar to financial literacy, that's really crucial there to be able to advocate for yourself. And that truly gives me so much hope for the future of healthcare for our community. Another piece that really gives me hope in the legislative area is that we're at least seeing a few courts rule in our favor that bans on gender-affirming care are unconstitutional. We've actually had several favorable court decisions in lower courts and then in some courts generally that have validated that this is evidence-based, medically necessary care, and it is not harming people. It is actually saving people's lives. And so that 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 understanding and the fact that we're getting good decisions and that is, that are affirming the fact that this is unconstitutional to ban our access to healthcare is is actually very it's very uplifting and very hopeful to me. And then another space that I think is is really giving me hope is I think. The more that our organization, Glamma, and other folks are working to educate health professionals, I think we're seeing that in this political landscape, people are not shying away from providing that care, although some are, but more often it is serving as like a catalyst and it's really mobilizing people to get more involved. We've seen far more inquiries from allied health professional saying, you know what, I want to increase my understanding of LGBTQ plus cultural competency. I want to make sure that I am treating my patients to the best of my ability so that they can have the care that they need and deserve. We've seen more people attend our webinars, more people attend all of our continuing medical education offerings in our conference. And those things are just incredibly important. And recognizing that our identities and our livelihoods are under attack has really solidified for some people that they need to step up and and act at this time. And I think that that honestly building out far more allies in this space is really, really crucial. Yeah. As you're speaking, it makes me think of that quote and I forget who said it and I know I'm going to bastardize the quote, something to the effect of every time that there's a catastrophe, just look for the people who are doing good. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate this. For such a long time, advocacy has kind of just been a label. I'm an advocate. I'm an advocate. You know, yeah, I'm an advocate. I went to Pride. I'm an advocate. I went to the gay clubs with you. I'm an advocate, you know, because my brother is gay. My sister's a lesbian. And it's nice to see that that advocacy is more action oriented today because that's unfortunately what we need right we know that the right has an literally has an army an army of religious folks an army of lawyers an army of of politicians and we aren't going to win the battle without having our own army to do that work and that means we need support from those people who truly are allies so that's that Mm -hmm. is great i love hearing that and seeing that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And if, if you'll let me like a, a short anecdote of like a place where I think like allies can show up and it's a mix between health and and financial services. But I always want to encourage folks, if we're encouraging people to access LGBTQ plus affirming health care, they should be accessing LGBTQ affirming everything. If you're looking for services, whether it's a real estate agent or a financial advisor, there are allies out there. And there are people who with lived experience out there who are in these professions. And I really hope people seek those out. When it comes to financial advisors in particular, I think you need someone just like you do in the in the health space who can help you navigate these systems that weren't designed for us. They weren't designed for queer folks. And these financial advisors can help you navigate those in a way that empowers you to make the best decision. When I met with my financial advisor years ago to explore life insurance, for example, my advisor walked me through every facet and guided me on the best you know investments for my family's future. 
And she explained to me that, for example, many in many areas, the cost of life insurance premiums are in part based on statistical differences in the life expectancies of men and women. That meant as a non-binary person myself, she explained to me I could either choose a binary gender or the company would likely average the life expectancies calculations for a man and a woman and thereby likely increasing my overall cost. My financial advisor walked me through these scenarios in such an affirming way where I felt seen and heard in my non-binary identity. And I knew that I had all of the information I would need to make the best decision for the financial future of my family. If I had been navigating that system on my own, I would have closed the window and never talked about life insurance ever again. It was not meant for non-binary people. I don't need it. That's fine. And that could have been a, a real detriment to my family's like livelihoods. So I think in this way, again, allies and folks who understand our lived experiences, are they serve such an essential role, whether it's financial advice or healthcare. They're just so similar and inextricably linked to me. And I, I really feel so empowered by and really hopeful because of those folks showing up right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. that. That's a great anecdote. With that in mind, how can our listeners get to that list of LGBTQ plus healthcare professionals and allies on Glamour's website or I'm assuming Glamour's website? <laughs> yes, definitely. It's definitely Glamour's website. You can go to www.glma.org or glamma.org and Really, it's been such a pleasure to connect with both of you and to everyone listening out there. I really hope that we stay in touch. And if you go to our website, you can not only look at the find a provider link that will take you to the LGBTQ healthcare directory, but you can also learn more about getting involved. We really have a membership plan for everyone. And getting involved with Glamo, whether it's a as a member, a donor, as a attendee at our annual conference on LGBTQ plus health, or as like a volunteer. Getting involved means that you're supporting a healthier future for you and your community. So remember glma.org and you can come and be a part of a future of LGBTQ healthcare that is equitable and accessible. I love that so much. And how can our uh, listeners and viewers connect with you on social media? Surely you're on social media, right? <laughs> oh, of course. We could not be at this point. We are on all social media channels and there are links on our website, but you can generally find us at GLMA underscore LGBTQ health or just GLMA. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for reaching out. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about uh, healthcare in America for LGBTQ plus people. It, I've always thought of the parallels between health physical wellness and money. I've never actually dialed it so closely to healthcare and mm -hmm. financial services. And I, that parallel has been made more clear to me. And I, we're dealing with similar challenges and, and battles. So hopefully we can all overcome these challenges together. I hope so. Well, thank you both so much for having me, really. I'm such a big fan. It was such a pleasure to join the show with you all. And I'm really looking forward to listening to more episodes with you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Alex, for a unique and insightful episode. We really appreciate it. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us for another episode. This week's newsletter will include information on how you can connect with Alex, more about GLAMA, G-L-M-A, and more information on the topics we just covered in this episode. Then join us this Thursday when we cover the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city in Alaska. And next Tuesday when we share how hiring R2D2, Johnny Five, or Bender may be your best investment strategy yet. Thank you and have a great week.